Welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. The winners are the, the people with the most stories. One of the great things about traveling is the people that you meet. I've slept in bus stations, like yeah. I've slept on people's floors. And it's already on fire, and then there's just a gigantic, huge explosion, like out of a Hollywood movie. It's not right or wrong, it's just different. We hired like 10 Chinese prostitutes to come be our audience. We were kidnapped by nuns in Puerto Rico. <laughs> not a good idea to be high when you're packing. You forget a lot of stuff. I got swine flu. By the time you've lived through it, it's just a good story. Hey everybody, welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. Welcome to the show. My guest today is Rob Sanborn. Before we get to Rob, I have a few announcements. First, our website is TravelTalesPodcast.com. Go there. You can see photos of our guests. You can see links to their sites and social media. You can see links to our social media which is, of course, Travel Tales Podcast on Instagram, Travel Tales Pod on Twitter. There's links to our Facebook page. Uh, you can link to Stitcher Radio or Apple Podcasts. We're anywhere you can find podcasts. And as always, I ask if you listen to us on any of those services, please give us a good rating because that helps more people find the show by boosting our presence. And that's a cool thing to do. And I would appreciate it. Also, if you think you'd be right for the show or know somebody who might be right for the show, maybe you want to write me and ask me some travel questions or just say nice things. You can write me at TravelTalesPodcast at gmail.com. That's TravelTalesPodcast at gmail.com. Okay, Rob Sanborn is an author. I was contacted by his publicist. And he's got a new novel out called The Prisoner of Paradise, which takes place in Venice and many other locations. Rob's a native New Yorker. He moved out to California and lived in L.A. doing the Hollywood screenwriter thing for about 20 years. And now he's living in Denver with his wife and child. He just moved there right before the pandemic. And we did this interview while he was on a ski trip. So he was up in Summit County, up in the Rockies, and he was nice enough to uh, interrupt his... (laughs) trip and talk to me. So he's an interesting guy. He studied Japanese in school and lived in Japan as a student right out of high school, studied international relations, been around the world, and we talked about how his travels affect his writing and inspired this story, which all came out of a famous painting that hangs in Venice. And well, he'll describe it for you. But again, this is one of those situations where I didn't know him. Somebody reached out to me uh, thinking they'd be a good guest and those people were right. He is a good guest, and it was a pleasure to get to know him, and I hope you'll enjoy our chat together. If you want to follow him, you can follow him at his website and get all his information at robsamborn.com. That's R-O-B-S-A-M as in Mike, B-O-R-N. And he's pretty much Rob Samborn at all social media, too. So go there, learn more about him, and you can get links to all his sites at traveltalespodcast.com. Please enjoy my chat with Rob Samborn. I'm not going to do the Hollywood lie and say, you know what? I love your book because I haven't read it. I'm not going to pretend like I've read it, but uh, give us the elevator pitch on what it's about. Sure. And I didn't expect you to read it because that would have been very <laughs> fast. And- now I'm going to do the ultimate Hollywood thing. Go, I didn't read I love the book. First of all, let me say I love it. Fantastic. You're very talented. Now go ahead. What's it Thank about? Thank you, Mike. I really appreciate that. And by the <laughs> way, I lived in LA for 20 years. Oh, so you know it then. Okay. Quite a bit. Yes. In yeah. fact, I was a screenwriter as well. So the book is called uh, The Prisoner of Paradise. It's the first of a series published by Touchpoint Press, and it takes place in Venice, Italy. It's a thriller blended with historical fiction and a little bit of magical realism. And it's about an American couple who traveled to Venice on vacation, and it becomes, they go there you know, for a great time. 
uh, but it quickly becomes the vacation from hell when the husband comes to believe that his true soulmate is not his wife, but a woman who's been trapped, whose soul really has been trapped in the world's largest oil painting, which has been around since the 1500s. His wife thinks that he's suffering from delusions. He actually did have a massive head injury. Um, you know, she just wants to get back and have him see a doctor, but he's adamant that this was real. And he goes on this quest to discover the truth. And on this quest, he finds a, an ancient society, an ancient order that over hundreds of years has developed a way of extracting people's souls from their bodies. And they imprison these souls in this painting. And this painting is a real painting in Venice. It's like I said, the world's largest oil painting. It's about 80 feet wide by 40 feet high. And it depicts the coronation of Mary in heaven. And it has literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people in it. And because he is a soulmate with one of those souls, he can communicate with her. And then he will do anything to free her. um, But this ancient order will do anything to stop him because they claim anyway, they claim that all of the souls are evil. Sounds like you've told that story one or two times before. One or two. And (laughs) like I said, it is the first of a series. So that book came out on November 30th of 2021. And the next book is coming out on October 25th. And then the third book will be coming out probably around summer of 23. Mm -hmm. A series. How many books do you think you're going to? publisher this right now it's three however it could definitely go beyond that and also i've decided to publish a few novellas so the book is a dual timeline book that takes place in the present day and also the 16th century and the nice thing about that is i can actually expand really at any point in time from when it's even before actually the 16th century to now and write these spin-off books so I may go four or five books with the present day characters, but I think I may also do spinoff books with the past characters, including this novella uh, series that I just mentioned, where that's only going to be historical fiction. So as a traveler and seeing how this is a travel podcast, the best thing I'm hearing about this book is that you can take many trips to Italy and to Venice and write it off as business. A hundred percent and not just <laughs> Italy, actually. I'm glad you said that. So in fact, I already did one. So I've been to Venice three times. I'm happy to talk about all those. But one of them was indeed a research trip for the book. And it was a write-off. Okay. So, And it's not just Venice. So right, the first book does take place in Venice. Uh, the second take book, hopefully I won't be spoiling too much, but it isn't only Venice. So the painting that I was talking about is the titular subject of the book, The Prisoner of Paradise. It's called Paradise. It was painted by a man named Jacopo Tintoretto. Uh, who is a Renaissance master. Most people who have studied art history, for example, definitely know him. He's not as famous as a Da Vinci or Michelangelo, but I'd put him in like the top 10 easily. And he actually painted three versions of this painting. There's a whole backstory to this enti- to this painting, which really is incredible as well. But he painted three versions, two studies also, which aren't quite as huge as the final version, but they're massive in their own right. One of them is at the Louvre in Paris, and one of them is at a museum in Madrid called the Tyson Bonamisa. So... We learn in the next books that this ancient order, which is still active to this day, is much bigger than just Venice. And you can guess where they may go. Okay. It, it kind of is striking to me as kind of like Sunday in the Park with George crossed with uh, the Da Vinci Code. 
I love that. A lot of people say the Da Vinci Code. <laughs> I've never had Sunday in the Park with George. Um, people, but sometimes I get Outlander or the Time sure. Traveler's Wife. Things. Like I just that. went with the painting angle. Yes, exactly. So, how big? You say it's the world's largest oil painting. Yes. How? What are the dimensions? It's about eighty feet wide by forty feet high roughly. And it also sits about 12 feet off the floor. So the scope of it is humongous. It also is in a room called the Great Council Room in the Doge's Palace or Palazzo di Cale, which is now a, a museum in Venice. But this building, the Palazzo di Cale or Doge's Palace, used to be, so Venice used to be um, a republic. Most Americans aren't aware of this. It was separate from Italy. It was a republic for close to a thousand years. They were the world's biggest maritime power. And the Doge's Palace was essentially a combination of the White House and Congress because the leader, the Doge, he was elected, but he was elected for life and he lived there. But then they also did political business. The senators would meet there. So it was kind of a combination of the two. And because there were so many uh, senators, they would meet in this room, which at one point was the largest room in all of Europe, the Great Council Room. And this painting takes up an entire wall of one of these uh, in the room. And you can, it's impossible to view it all at once unless you go all the way back, but then you're too far away. So you really want to be closer and you kind of need to look at each individual part of the painting, which is really amazing to think about the scale of that in terms of painting it, right? Like, because when you're painting it, you're up close, you know, you're a foot away. So to be able to get the scale of every single person, and like I said, there are hundreds of people in this painting. How long did it take? to make? I think it took about four or five years. Okay. So you remember the first time you went to Venice and saw it and what was it about the painting other than its size and everything else that made you think, wow, there's a story in here. That's a great question. And the story was originally inspired by a different Tintoretto painting, actually, one called The Crucifixion in a different museum called the Scuola Grande di San Rocco, which is a very cool museum that's filled with Tintoretto paintings. Also, many of them are very large. A lot of his works are huge. This particular one is probably about 25 by maybe 15. So not quite as big, but still very big. And it depicts, of course, the, the, the crucifixion, as you would imagine. But most crucifixion paintings and artwork, they are hyper-focused on you know Jesus on the cross, right? This one, you're going to love this Hollywood terminology. Mm -hmm. It's basically an establishing shot. It's an establishing action shot that looks like a drone took it from about 150 feet away. You see everything that's going on in the entire scene. And there's probably about 75 different people. And they are from all works of life, all different ages, genders, races, you name it. And each one looks like an individual portrait. So I started thinking, well, who were these people that really got immortalized into this work? You know, they truly are immortalized. It's, it's there today. And not just that painting, obviously, but all of them. Of course, I knew that artists still to this day use models, but did Tintoretto have a line of 75 people outside <laughs> his door, right? Probably not. So I started really thinking about it. And then, you know, I'm a writer and a storyteller and I got the idea, okay, maybe it was their souls that were extracted from their bodies and put in. And then I started doing more research and actually I did not see Paradise on my first trip to Venice. <laughs> so I started doing research and then found Paradise, which still to this day kind of gives me chills just thinking about how perfect the content is for the story that I wanted to tell to just have all these faces trapped 
in one particular canvas. So how long ago did the inspiration come and how long has this been going through your head? A very long time ago. So <laughs> I used to be a screenwriter and the I originally wrote the story for this as a script. Um, and I wrote that probably honestly about 15 years ago or so, maybe even a little more. It was optioned by a production company founded by DreamWorks execs. And when the option reverted back to me, it, I decided to convert it into a book. Did you get frustrated with Hollywood? How, you were in Hollywood for what? How long? So the inspiration really did come about maybe 15 plus years ago or so. And I did write the script and it was option, but the option reverted back to me. So really, honestly, the, the, this idea always stuck with me. I always loved it. It was always one of my favorite ideas that I've ever had. And I decided, hey, you know what? I'm going to convert this into a book. And I had the brilliant idea of, hey, you know what? I'm going to convert it to a book and boom, it's going to sell. And then I'm going to have the script ready to go. <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah. I mean, but I mean, I don't know how long. I mean, I've talked to a couple authors on here and I know a lot of people have self-published things and, and things like that. Was your aim to self-publish it or be or first to get a publish, publisher or what ended up happening? My aim was always for it to be traditionally published, which it is, and I do have an agent. So that process did take a little while and it's quite similar with screenwriting where you know I, I got my agent the old-fashioned way. I sent out query letters um, and signed with my agent and then they send it out to publishers and we got a, we got a publisher. Um, the big difference though between books and scripts is time. It's writing it, first of all, is way longer. And then the process is just glacial, glacial. It's the publishing industry. This is something, you know, I'm sure you can sense in the tone of my voice, but coming, you know, from Hollywood to publishing, it's just so, so slow and so backwards in many respects. Um, if my publisher is listening to this, I love it. Yeah. Yeah. It's the best. Um, but yeah, it seems to be a, a lot less collaborative, you know, it's probably a lot more lonely uh, writing a book, I would think. Yeah. Well, I mean, usually, you know, you write, I mean, unless you're working on TV, but if you're, yeah, if I mean, you're working I mean on a, yeah. Yeah. I'm more of a TV uh, right. background, but yeah, yeah, I get it. I get it. So it is lonelier writing the book for sure. Um, once, you know, but I do collaborate with my agent and then also with the publishing company, but more or a little bit on the post, you know, you know, I work with the editor for sure. So we do that, mm -hmm. um, that exists, but then where it really becomes a little bit more collaborative is actually once the book, um, is in pre-launch or post-launch, you know, with mm -hmm. marketing and things like that. And that's another huge difference, um, especially with movies, you know, it's like once a script is done, if you sell it half the time or more than half the time, 90% of the time, they don't even want the writer around. Yeah. Right? <laughs> um, and the writer, a screenwriter would never market a movie or anything like that, unless you're, you know, you're direct writing, directing and producing yeah. your own low budget thing. Um, but in, you know, in publishing, unless you're with a big five publisher, and even then, you really need to do a lot of your own self-promotion and self-marketing. No, I can imagine. Yeah. Um, so I'm trying to get this on a travel angle in terms of your journey. So where are you from and what was your route to Hollywood and where is it taking you now? Do you, yeah, do you still absolutely. live in L.A.? 
No, I don't. So I'd love to talk about that. And this book really is inspired. And one of the reasons why I was dying to be on your show is because <laughs> this, for two reasons, I could say one is that it was inspired from a trip. And two, it's about travelers. So in answer to your question, I'm originally from New York City. Uh, I lived in LA for about 20 years. And then I moved to Denver with my wife and daughter and dog about mm. two and a half years ago. So uh, right before the pandemic. <laughs> oh, nice timing. Yes. So you always want to move to a place where you don't know a single person before a, wor- <laughs> a worldwide plague. <laughs> yeah, but you missed the riot, which was a block from my house. So, you know, you got out of that. So good. That was good timing. So um, we, yeah. yeah. So was writing always your thing? Did did were you ever a performer? Did I was never a performer, but writing was not always my thing. So I I've traveled a great deal. I've been to 40 countries, about 40 states, and I also studied abroad. So I've lived in five of those countries. Um, and so I've studied abroad a lot. And the first time I went to Venice, which was not the first time I saw this painting, was during a study abroad trip. Um, so, but I was originally studying international relations. So really my background is truly much more about international stuff and international culture and traveling and all that. But I've always loved writing. So I have that international relations background. I used to work for the Japanese government, actually, then went into tech, but you know, always love traveling. I'm a storyteller and I, I find stories wherever I go. So never left me. Did Were you one of the guys after college, you throw everything in the backpack and uh, hit the road for, you know, go to Asia or uh, backpack through Europe or something? I wanted to, but the only reason why I didn't is because I had studied abroad three times during. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You, you went, you, you filled the backpack and went to Idaho. That was probably like the big, big thing. <laughs> so you were an East Coast kid. Mm-hmm. Was Hollywood part of the uh, the writing journey, or was it more of like half writing and half like I'm ready to live somewhere else? Let me try the other coast. I would say it was a combination of wanting to break into Hollywood, but also wanting to try the other coast. So when you grow up, I love New York, don't get me wrong. But when you grow up in New York, it starts to grate on you. And, you know, so I lived there for a few years after college. And then at that point, I was getting into screenwriting. So I studied it at a school in New York. um, And I had a lot of family living in LA. So had two scripts done. I was like, you know what, I'm going to basically pack my bags and drive across country, which is what happened. Did you write anything we might have seen? Anybody, anything we would know you from? Unfortunately not. No, none of my scripts were ever produced. So five of them were optioned, but for a number of different reasons, none of them were produced. It's funny how you tell people who are not in the business and they go, uh, wait, you can make a living uh, not getting anything made? And I said, mm-hmm. I know people that made a nice living never yeah. getting anything made. But Absolutely. It, any other options business, I've had, yeah. Yeah, it's so crazy to them. But it's yeah. like, yeah, it's the way it is. It is. You know, I've I've actually made, let's just say, some money. You can say from writing assignments, options, and also uh, script doctoring. I do script doctoring as well. Okay. So yeah. why why Denver of all places? Is your wife from there? She's not. She's from Austin, Texas. Okay. Um, so, you know, I have a crazy wanderlust. I really do. We and all do. Yeah, we all do, I guess. Well, those who are listening here. Yeah, right. (laughs) Exactly. So um, my wife and I had both been living in L.A. for about 20 years. uh, You know, we not we didn't start there together. She went to USC, actually. And then we met after she graduated from USC. And 
it was really the kind of thing where, you know, we love LA, we loved living there, but we were ready for a change. We did look we were living in Culver city, used to live in Santa Monica before that. And we were looking for a different place, um, in, um, sorry, the Canyon. I got, I forgot the name of it. Um, (laughs) the really cool Canyon, like rustic Canyon or, um, Laurel Canyon. No, more West. Um, Topanga. Topanga. Thank you. Sorry about that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So we were looking there, found a really cool house there, but this was in the summer of 2019 when all those fires were happening. Yeah. Yeah. And Topanga Canyon was basically on fire and there are two ways in and two ways out. And we had at at that point, I think my daughter was four and we were just like, "Ah." and we were thinking about moving anyway. And Denver was on a very short list of cities and we just decided to, you know, take the plunge. Yeah, well, great. Is is she working out there? She is. Yes, she is. So okay, well, she that's does good. Finance for a real estate company. Yeah. All right. Well, a little more affordable. Uh, for now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And if you talk to any of the Denverites, they hate all the people coming from of California course. because so does everybody. You know, it's right. the same thing. The or the Oregon people bitch about it. The Arizona right. people, the Texas people, the Florida people. Yeah, it's but like, meanwhile, we're driving up the home values. Yeah, I get well, it if you haven't bought your home yet. Yeah, what do you, you know, come but, on. Right. And everybody complains about everybody else, but. Right, you know. exactly. But uh, have you adjusted? Are you fully Colorado man now? You're, uh, you got mm-hmm. the Jeep and you're, you're skiing. I'm talking to you right oh. now up in uh, Summit County. So you are skiing already. We are skiing. Yes. So have the Epic Pass. And, oh, uh, sure. Yep. So we went to Vail today. Uh, Breckenridge yesterday and the Keystone the day before. I do not have a Jeep. I have the same exact <laughs> CRV I actually bought in LA uh-huh. and drove that out here. So that worked well. Um, I would not say, no, I'm not a Colorado man. Um, I <laughs> like it here. It's cool. The, the thing I miss the absolute most, though, is being near an ocean. Yeah, that would be the hardest. I've been to Denver many times. I used to shoot a show there and, uh, you know, I have friends there and everything. Like that. I like it, but, uh, and I love the mountains because I'm from Illinois originally. So any mountains to me, I still love to see and be on. But uh, yeah, it is. I do like being by an ocean, too. Yeah. I, I, I would miss that. And it's super dry there. Man, it's, you burn through chapstick there like you wouldn't believe. Yes. And the audience can't see me right now, but I should have been burning through sunblock today, too. <laughs> <laughs> I was applying the chapstick. Yeah. It's super dry. It took me about, I'm not joking, probably about a year and a half to really fully adjust. I was perpetually thirsty. I still kind of am. So that's <laughs> been an, a little bit of an issue. You know, I'll always be a New Yorker at heart. Um but honestly, I, I really, I know this is a bit of a cliche to say, especially on a travel podcast, <laughs> but I'm a, I'm a person of the world. On an honest, if I had the opportunity to move to Europe, I probably wouldn't in a heartbeat. You know, yeah, me too. Talk about that. Yeah. I would also move to Asia. I've spent a good deal of time in Asia. I lived in Japan for a year and, um, you yeah, know, I wanted so- to, I wanted to get to the Japan part. Yeah. Because how did that happen? I mean, did you study Japanese or, uh, you know, you were in international relations, but did you you get a job at a hotel or something out there? No, um, actually cooler than that, I think. So I studied Japanese in high school and participated in, in a study abroad or exchange program in high school. And then I and I think about five or six other New Yorkers were selected for something called the Young Diplomats Program. And we were part of this experimental 
full year, fully immersive program where we had to defer college for a year. Our, first, we had to be accepted to college. Then our college had to agree to defer us for a year. And then we actually did an additional year of high school after graduating from high school in Tokyo. And we lived with Japanese families. So you had so, a gap year, kind of. Like. It was it was a gap year, but it wasn't, you know, we weren't like traveling around. Like right. I had to you, go you were to working class. on a fishing boat. You were going to school. Yeah. You had five years of high school. I did. Yeah. And it didn't count, but you know, Japanese schools are very strict. And if I ever slacked off, which I did pretty much all the time, because <laughs> I was already in college and I graduated from American high school right. I, and I knew my classes didn't count. So I really was slacking off all the time. I was like the only guy ever to be in home ec there in the entire school's history. <laughs> it was a co-ed school, um, but guys had never taken home ec, um, but they were cooking. So I was like going there all the time, eating like this awesome Japanese food that the high school girls were making. <laughs> so I did get in trouble. Um, it was pretty strict. They need, they, you know, they wanted me to like sit in class and stuff like that, which I did do. Um, but yeah, so it wasn't really a gap year in that respect. But because of that, my Japanese became very good. Yeah, I was conversationally fluent and um, I was a dual major in college of international relations and Japanese. Or really, I, I switched. I was an international relations major with a minor in uh, Japanese and poli-sci. Well, it's funny how it's like growing up in the 80s. You know, I'm a little older than you, I think. But uh, at that time when Japan was just killing it and they were it was booming, that everybody was like, you got to learn Japanese, man. It's it's the next wave, you know, they're taking over. You, you, know, you want to do business, you got to learn Japanese. And now it's kind of flipped to like, you got to learn Mandarin. Yep, exactly. That's weird. I'm not that young. I grew up in the 80s too. And it was the exact reason why you know, it was all about Japan back then. Right. So, yeah. It was cool. That must have been great. I love Japan. And this Same. is the Japan was the trip that uh, I've pushed twice because of COVID. I have like... And speaking of skiing, I was going to go skiing up in the North uh, Island in Japan. And, Hokkaido. and uh, yeah, I wanted to get up there and and uh, I had a whole thing planned and then COVID happened and then I canceled it. And I've pushed it twice already and I'm, they're still not open. So I think I may have to push it again. Yeah, that's too bad. But you've been to Japan? Oh, yeah. Just the once, though. I was in Tokyo and Kyoto. Nice. Yeah. I love Tokyo and Kyoto. I actually have a kind of a funny Japanese skiing story. <laughs> oh, yeah. But we love those. Cool. So I Tokyo is like LA in terms of weather. It does not snow there. Maybe one or two days a year, you might get a very, very light flurry. So it's a little bit colder than LA, but not much. Right. We went skiing probably about five hours. I'd be kind of like going to Mammoth, but this was a much smaller hill. Um, and my, my host family took me up there and you had to put chains on the tires went skiing and we stayed in a, a gyokan, which is like a traditional Japanese inn. And, but so, and you roll out these tatami mats, which was very cool. But then we go into the dining room and all of a sudden it's like super classical Western style where they have like tuxedoed waiters with napkins over their arms and they're lifting <laughs> up silver platters. I'm like, okay. And I asked for what was for dinner and they said beef stew. And I'm like, all right, you know, I've been skiing all day. I can go for some beef stew. They put two squares of meat on my plate and just put a little bit of sauce on it. And I'm like, okay, not really my idea of beef stew, <laughs> but I'm starving. I'm going to eat it. And I put my fork in it and it just goes straight through to the plate, like, bink! and it was basically cubes of fat. And <laughs> everybody around <clears throat> is eating 
And I'm like, how are they eating this? Cause I cannot. So I tried it and I couldn't put it down my, my stomach. So I went to bed hungry that night. The next night was like traditional Japanese food, which was basically whole fried fish, which is pretty much one of the only Japanese things I won't eat because you be, you need to be a cat to eat it. They just go right. head to tail the whole entire fish. And I'm a, an extremely adventurous eater. I've had fried bees on sticks and scorpion and ants, and, <laughs> but I cannot eat that fish like that. And I love fish. So again, I went to bed hungry and there weren't really too many places to eat at the ski resort. So then we finally are driving back down to Tokyo with chains on the tires all the way back oh. to Tokyo. <laughs> Imagine driving from Mammoth all the way to LA with chains. It was just <laughs> the entire way back. And I had major stomach issues and they took me to the doctor. And this is all in Japanese, by the way. And the doctor diagnosed me with an ulcer. <laughs> Oh, and no. I was like, you're going to give me an ulcer now. I just have like some weird stomach issue. <laughs> so, <laughs> but uh, anyway, that's that, that was a story. So that was fine. But <laughs> wow. Skiing was fine. Yeah. <laughs> but I got to think, I don't know how much traveling you did before that. I mean, I went first time I left the country was after college. So I'd never been out of the country until I was uh, 21. But, you know, you were a kid. Uh, had you been out of the country much before that? I mean, were you pretty well traveled? Did your family go around a lot? I would say I was not well traveled, but I was very well inspired, you can say. The only place I had been out of the country prior to that was to Ireland. Um, so I didn't even take a plane until fourth grade. And my family actually at that point did very little traveling, even I'm saying even locally, you know, maybe we would see relatives or something like that. Uh, but I did start feeling a bit of a wanderlust at a very early age, either probably first or second grade. Um, so my dad was doing a lot of international traveling at the time for business, particularly to Asia. And this was roughly 1978 to 1980 or so. And, um, you know, I hate to use the word exotic um, because it's definitely ethnocentric, yeah. but, um, you know, at the time Asia was, was considered exotic, right? Yeah. Um, so he sure. would come back. Yeah. He would come back with all these interesting stories. He would go to, to, uh, to Japan and Korea and other places. And he'd come back with these great stories and gifts. And I was just fascinated with everything. And I remember he took me to a sushi restaurant around that time as well, which was really unheard of. And on top of that, I was living in a place in New York called Roosevelt Island. Oh, I know Roosevelt Island. Oh, cool. Have you been? Yeah. I lived in uh, Brooklyn for about 14 months. Oh, nice. Where yeah. in Brooklyn? Uh, Park Slope. Oh, I was like cool. Fifth Avenue and Third Street. Oh, I actually used to live quite close to there as well. I lived in Park right. Slope too. All right. Yeah. Very cool that you've been to Roosevelt. Yeah. Well, we, I went there with my cousin and I can't remember why. It had that weird like gondola or cable car kind of situation. And it yep. was I remember there was a lot of hospitals there. So a yeah. lot of people in wheelchairs on the <laughs> yeah. sidewalk. Yes, that is true. And the cable car is called the tram. <laughs> that the tram. That's what I'm thinking. Why did yeah, I say gondola? It's, it's a gondola. I'm in it, ski. I'm in ski mode here. Yeah, me too. I mean, it is. I don't know what the difference would be, except it's bigger than I guess a gondola. Yeah, it's a big but, tram. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And um, yeah. So for the for the listeners out there, Roosevelt Island is a small island in the East River between Manhattan Island and Queens or Long Island, really yeah. geographically. And there are a number of hospitals there. And there's also apartment <laughs> buildings there. And um, it's also a very cool place. And when I lived there, there were ruins too. You know, there's not too many ruins in New York, but I'm talking like real ruins, like a smallpox hospital, this place called the Octagon uh, is a really interesting <laughs> place. And 
um, a number of people who, so it's very close to the UN. Yeah. And so a number of people who worked there at the UN also lived on Roosevelt Island. So I was friends with their kids. And plus just growing up in New York, I was exposed to a huge number of cultures. Um, so the first time I took a plane, actually, I was in fourth grade. My stepmom is Irish. And we took a family trip to see her family. That was when the travel bug really bit. Um, you know, I adored Ireland from Dublin to the countryside to seeing the castle ruins there. We even went up to Northern Ireland and this is during the troubles. Uh, there were military and tanks at the border. And I remember we took two cars and my brother was in a different car without his passport. So we were all worried for him. Um, they let him through. We're still hoping <laughs> to get him back. <laughs> that would be nice. Uh, but yeah, that's really when this all started coming about for me. And then I studied a, a number of languages and love Japanese and had the opportunity to participate in that exchange program that I talked about. So it was, it was really from there. I was off to the races. But after college, you never like took that job in uh, back in Japan and said, you know what, I'm going to live here for a few years. I really wanted to and considered it. So I worked for the Japanese government in New York oh, okay. and I was traveling quite a bit for that job in America. And I did have to go to Japan um, once or twice, which was pretty cool. But I was basically just traveling for vacation and trips all the time, you know, doing, so I would do like, instead of taking six months to backpack around Southeast Asia, I would take, you know, like four, two week trips. Okay. Yeah, I get it. But, um, so how are your Japan skills? How are your Japanese skills right now? <laughs> Not that great. Rusty? It's pretty rusty. Yeah. So I do speak it sometimes. I'll try in restaurants, but 90% of the time, the person in the restaurant's not Japanese. So, so, right. Uh, <laughs> but I've been back since a couple of times, and it is a little bit like riding a bike. You know, it'll come back to me quite a bit. So that's pretty cool. It's, it's pretty much ingrained in, my head, ingrained in my head. Yeah. I went to a baseball game there and loved it. Nice. Yeah. That was fun. fun. Yeah. That, it was great. So after you go to Japan, so you're obviously, you've seen a little bit of the world by the time you go to college. Mm -hmm. And do you think you would have majored in international relations had you not taken that year in Japan? That's a great question. I'm going to say yes, I think so, because I was that into it. I studied four or five languages in high school. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Do, you, do you think... <clears throat> Because that's one of the big fears. And one of the uh, reasons I do this podcast is from the beginning was trying to ease people's fears about traveling. Mm -hmm. And not knowing a language is one of the biggest fears people have. Of, well, what, what, how am I going to get around? How am I gonna do? And do you think, I mean, I speak a bit of Spanish, but do you think there's just something in people that can, who can pick it up? easier than others because other people have like no capacity for it. Yes, of course. There's no question about it. And I get the fear, you know, especially here in America where it's so English centric, you yeah. know, in Europe, you're, you know, here, like Colorado, I think we have seven states that border us. So obviously they all speak English. You go to Europe and you're going to have seven countries sure. that probably speak 20 different languages going on. Yeah. So I totally get Americans being apprehensive about traveling. And I do think that definitely some people just have a better ear for it than others. But I want to reassure people that, first of all, these days, 
so many people speak English around the world. You know, it's, it's yeah, really it's, not. It's a the problem. closest thing to a world language you're going to get. I mean, I tell people, especially through Asia and stuff like that, yeah. you know, they'll give a tour in the local language and then English. Yes. Not Italian, not Spanish, right. not German. They're going to put it in English. So it's like, that's a huge, the signs will be in Japanese and then in English. Exactly. <laughs> so it's like, you have no exactly. idea what advantage that is. I mean, that's it, it's true, which is why so many people who aren't from English speaking countries learn English. And, exactly. You know, and the flip side to that is I meet people from other countries who have American accents, speak fluent English. And I'm shocked after a whole entire conversation to find out that they're not American. Have you oh, ever yeah. experienced that? Oh, of course. I work on yeah. uh, Holland America Holland. cruise lines. So the Dutch yeah, speak English Dutch. than we do. It's Most true. Americans are really. It's true, especially the Dutch. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, and for people who haven't really gotten out there, you know, there's quote unquote starter trips. You know, you can go to any English speaking country or you Australia go to Australia is a nice, easy way to ease into it. A hundred percent. Or if you do go to Asia, you know, Hong Kong, half the people speak English, if not more, even Macau, which is kind of cool. It's like the signs are in, uh, I think, Cantonese, English and Portuguese, which is very interesting because it used <laughs> yeah. to be a Portuguese colony. So things like that. And, you know, I studied abroad also in Greece and Hungary. And those are languages I did not study in high school. I did not speak a word of Hungarian or Greek uh, before I went. But, you know, you pick it up, you learn. People are super friendly. You know, you've mentioned this a number of times on your shows, <laughs> how, how welcoming people are to travelers. How was uh, Greece and how long did that last? So it was just a semester in college. Okay. I loved it. In Athens? No, I was in a city called Thessaloniki, which is the second largest city in Greece and it's in the north. Have you been there? No, but I I know that one. I mean, I do know that city because it's one of the big ones. Yes. And it's in the, I need to phrase this right. I think the Macedonian part of Greece. Yeah. If anybody is from Macedonia or Greece. Well, I studied, I was watching North Macedonia play soccer this this past week. Oh. And they, they almost made the World Cup. They're just that close. But they, nice. and I, real, I was wondering why they were called North Macedonia instead of just Macedonia. And the reason is because the Greek government, you know, when it broke off, when the, that country broke off from Yugoslavia and everything, mm-hmm. uh, they wanted to call themselves Macedonia. And then the Greeks stepped in and went, whoa, <laughs> That's, right. when people think Macedonians, they think us and the Greeks. And, and so the compromise between them and the U.N. and everybody else kind of bartered this. OK, you have to call yourself North Macedonia. Yeah. And it all comes from Alexander the Great. Yeah. Because they want to lay, lay claim to Alexander the Great. So he's from I think he might actually be from Thessaloniki. And uh, it's also where Mount Olympus is. It's a really, really cool, amazing place. It's an amazing. The Thessaloniki itself is a metropolis that has fantastic food and great culture. A lot of people don't go there, unfortunately. You know, they stick to Athens and the islands. But I love Greece. Yeah. No, I would go back. But I did the Athens and islands thing. But I would love to see more of it. And I also want to go uh, down to with the Crete. I haven't been to uh, you know, the big it. island down there. but. Yeah, I've never been to Crete either. If you ever get a chance to go into the center part of mainland Greece, go to a place called Meteora, which is like Meteor with an A at the end. Have you heard of it? I've heard of it. Yeah. Yeah, it's so cool. So for the listeners out there, there are these monolithic stone structures that shoot up maybe like 30 stories, maybe not that big, maybe like 20 <laughs> stories. They're, they're enormous. They're like skyscrapers. And on many of them are monasteries. 
and you can go up to them. It's very no, that cool. sounds that sounds very cool. Yeah. But man, this is you know. Do you think every place you've lived has shaped you in some way? Did it change you in some way? Without question. Okay. Yes. And not just lived. I would say every place I've been has shaped me in some way. How has it affected your writing? You think? Oh, thank you for asking that question because I did want to get back to that. <laughs> <laughs> I know so, you did. You got a, You got a book. You got a book. You got to promote. Yeah, but beyond that, like I, 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 no, I'm not kidding. Like I love talking to other travelers. One of my favorite things about traveling, or when I'm traveling, is meeting other travelers, and you know, having a drink with them and sharing stories. You know, learning about them and learn, definitely learning, of course, about the culture and the people where you are, but also like meeting those travelers in those places. I love doing that. And in terms of my writing, it absolutely shapes it. I mean, the book is really about travelers who are going to Venice. You know, it becomes like this thriller and it's the vacation from hell, as I mentioned, and it's also mixed with historical fiction. But it also is about what would a traveler do in this particular situation? And this was something that I had to deal with in the writing and the plot. Like, why can't they just get on a plane and go home? Right? So, you know, what's going to keep them there and how are they going to navigate it? And especially, so there's part, hopefully I won't be spoiling too much of it, but, um, you know, I talked about what the book is about before, and there is a part where the wife, Julia, her husband, Nick disappears for a while, for a couple of days, and she's freaking out. It's right. It's like, what does she do? You know, does she go to the consulate? Does she talk to the police? All these different things. So from my experiences, that has never happened to me. But I did look back on my experiences as a traveler and think, okay, what would I do in this particular situation where I don't necessarily speak the language? She doesn't. I don't know what I'm going to do. Do I go to the American consulate? You know, what do I do? Right. So I really had to put myself into the shoes and into that perspective of that type of person. So my travels absolutely helped shape my writing like that. Now, does the book take place in uh, modern day or is it in the past? It's about 65% in modern day and 35% in uh, the 1500s. Okay. Well, I think about um, like even seeing movies from like when I was growing up and as, as a traveler from when the first time I left the country, like in the late eighties and early nineties to what I had to go through, like bringing travelers checks, you know, no phones, paper maps, um, you know, just one little guidebook. And now I look at movies that I older movies, even like National Lampoon's Vacation. Yeah. Like every problem they get into could be solved with like a cell phone and a GPS. And a <laughs> you know what card. I mean? And a credit oh. card. And you're just yeah. going, oh, that would you'd have to rewrite the entire thing now to update how much travel has changed and how much uh, the internet has changed travel. A hundred percent, man. Travelers checks. I haven't think. Remember those? <laughs> that I do. Cashing them at the hotel, you get screwed on the rate, and then you. Oh no, you got to cash them over at the bank. Right. That's a and better you, rate. You would protect them, you know, like oh. like cash, really. But but there were huge bills. And go, <laughs> oh, yeah, God, and going through Europe pre pre Euro, and yeah. changing uh, constantly. Lira. Now I get francs. Now I got to yes. get Deutsche marks. Now I get. It was a pain in the ass, but I like to call it the golden age of getting lost. Yeah. Which I think ended around 1995 to 1997-ish, you know, roughly. 
And yes, you can still get lost. You can lose your cell phone, but yeah. you know, let's be realistic here, right? So it's like when you were really traveling, you would send postcards, right? Or like when I would call my parents, I would have to call them collectively, like, is it okay? Yeah. You know, <laughs> um, can you reverse the charges? Yes. <laughs> or something like that from a payphone, by the way. Yep. Send Remember a postcard. Payphones? Send yeah. a postcard. And you can so, never make a long distance call from your hotel. So you had yep. to find some other way to, yeah. Absolutely. I'm so glad you asked this question because I mentioned before that I originally wrote the story as a screenplay many years ago, and I did write it pre-smartphone. <laughs> so, um, you know, e- email existed and internet cafes and things like that, but people were not carrying around cell phones. You certainly were not carrying them around internationally no. because it was extraordinarily expensive. So there was really no point, even if it worked half the time, it probably wouldn't. Even oh, work. no. Yeah. yeah. And then things like Google Translate. And oh, stuff and yeah. <laughs> like, oh yeah. my God, it just, um, yeah, I'm sounding like old man yeah. here, but it was just like, there was a time Same. we didn't have all this I stuff. Know. When I was your age. So uh, yeah, we had to get around with a backpack right. and show up and did <laughs> one lonely planet guide. And that was yep, it. Lonely planet. So I had to actually work in modern technology as I was writing the book, which was very interesting because I did need to have some characters lose their cell phones and things like that and have them get lost and make it realistic in the modern age. I've been in places and had conversations in bars or whatever, hostels and stuff around the world that I remember thinking in my mind that, you know, I'd write it down in a journal, but I'm going, you know what, this could, this could be a scene in a movie or something, you know, do you, did you pull things like actual scenes from your travels and put them in the book and go that's a couple okay a couple yeah just a couple there's one you know you were talking about like tour guides and stuff like that so i took i did take a tour of that building the palazzo to call the doge's palace there's a very cool tour called the secret itineraries tour where you go into the bowels there's dungeons in this building and i needed to see that for research and the tour is in english uh, but the tour guide herself was a very colorful character she was italian but she'd say things like as you know, back in 1216, when Constantinople was at war with, with Venice, I was like, yeah, of course, everybody knows that. <laughs> so yeah, right. I did As you know. Her, yeah, I worked her in. Um, and there are a few smaller things that just like from conversations and stuff like that, that I wanted to include. Yeah. So I've got a couple of things like that. Well, how about your own tales in terms of uh, have you ever had run ins with, uh, say, police? abroad or any authorities if you've ever been held for any reason in a place i was falsely accused of shoplifting in hungary okay um, how yep. did that go down the guy would just like he pulled my me over and was like hey you stole some candy bars and it's like no i didn't and like brought me into the back and took my jacket off and shook it out and there were no stolen candy bars so that <laughs> happened <laughs> um and then that was my only time really as a run-in with the police. Okay. Um, well, we probably could leave that out of the book then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the candy so, bar incident. Uh, yeah. I was picked up by the police at the Hungarian-Romanian border, but it wasn't for any type of accused crime or, or anything like that. So as I mentioned before, I did a semester abroad in Hungary. This was in a city called Pech, which is in the south, which is a very cool city. And at the time, this was in the mid-90s, so shortly after the fall of communism, and things were dirt cheap. You know, Eastern Europe is still very affordable, but back then, 
I was without exaggeration living on three dollars a day for three meals, including beer. I did <laughs> smoke cigarettes at the time. I don't anymore. And my f- American friend and I, and also this, so we were like, "Where do we get the, be- the beers?" Were maybe like ten. I'm not exaggerating, like ten cents. Oh, and those cigarette- are the days. Yeah, and cigarette pack of cigarettes was like. Five cents, something like something crazy <laughs> like that. Super, super, super cheap. And this our Hungarian friend was like, "Oh, it's even better in Romania." So, like, oh, we got to go to Romania. <laughs> so we hitchhiked to Romania, um, but we never made it across because nobody wanted to pick us up and bring us over the border. We got within a kilometer, and ultim- ultimately, cops picked us up. And we didn't really speak much Hungarian at all. So our Hungarian friend had to explain that we were American tourists and, you know, but, and they basically, they, they could tell, you know, the cops and they just went to see American passports and then they drove us back. And of course we had to get back for tests and stuff. So we ended up spending a lot more money on a bus <laughs> to <Yeah>. get back <laughs> than we would have saved on a couple of bottles of vodka and a carton of cigarettes. <laughs> yeah. But, and by a lot more money, we're talking, you know, $20. <laughs> right. Exactly. But it was like our emergency money. Like we slept in clubs like that was our thing <laughs> we would go to like these towns where they had clubs and that were open to like four o'clock in the morning and we would just go to the back of the dance floor and kind of sleep in the back because we didn't have enough money to stay even at a hostel <laughs> but <laughs> was, of course me and the american guy had like an emergency 20 or 30 bucks which we used for the bus yeah so does budapest still are they the ones with the ruined pubs those ones that are like they they take an old bombed out building and they kind of turn it into this, you know, these nightclubs all I've over. I've heard about that. I've never been to one, but that sounds super cool. Yeah, I went to one, that. I remember. But I don't know if was it was like going to a rave. Kind of. I mean, if you look closely, I mean, on quick glance, you would think it was just a, a building mm-hmm. and you didn't you wouldn't realize till later, like, oh, part of the roof is missing or something. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it's, it, this building doesn't seem fully finished. You know, yeah, we're like safe, that. but there's, yeah. Oh, where's the electricity coming from in here? Some, you oh, know, wow. No, I've never been to that. That sounds crazy. Yeah. It was kind of cool. And I have been to Romania. Well, I was in Bucharest and um, up into Transylvania a bit, which was, I thought was pretty cool. Nice. But, yeah. yeah. So I never made it to Romania. Oh yeah. That's right. You, you made it to the border. Yeah. So what was your first trip that you mentioned? I think you said when you were 21. Abroad. Well, it was the six weeks of backpacking through Europe with the oh, Eurail okay. pass and Everything staying in hostels and yep. yeah, just uh, way too many countries in a short time, right? That kind of thing. But it, but that was enough for me to you know it just changed my world view, just changed, blew my head right off. Exactly, and that was it. And sometimes you only need that first one. Just go, it just flips the light switch, you know. Yep, exactly. Yeah, I love it. When you thought of a story, I know this this one spoke to you, but was writing a book. Like, was it always going to take place in a foreign land, you think? I mean, you don't want to write about New York or <laughs> something. Well, New York, I think, is a pretty cool place to have a script. Oh, sure. You know, There's a lot going on. Or of a course. book. Or, yeah, such script acts. Um, so many have been done. Yes, but there's so many more stories. You know, yeah. there's a story around every corner. So with this particular one, it was always, I, my plan was always to set it in Venice. And um, have you been to Venice, by the way? Yeah. It's been a little while, but I do remember some Venice. I wanted to ask you about Venice. You've been there more than I have, but I know they um, one benefit of COVID and the shutdown. They said they were going to 
start limiting the amount of cruise ships and things that went in there finally, because it was just, it was too touristy. It was just getting overrun. And so if there's one benefit to come out of COVID and the shutdown, it's just like you took the tourists away and people enjoyed their city again, you know? Yeah. And, and so maybe it's, I'd like to go back now that if, if it's less crowded. They also implemented a tourist tax to try and discourage, you know, very short day trippers from going. Hopefully that'll work as well. And, you know, for anybody listening out there, I don't want them to think that this is discouraging for them because Venice is truly one of the most remarkable cities on planet Earth. You know, it was built about a thousand years ago on a swamp. They built a marble city on top of a swamp. The entire city is sitting on millions of petrified wood pylons. And those, you know, everybody knows that Venice is sinking and it's sinking for, it's sinking plus rising sea levels. So those pylons are actually over time being, you know, because really there is a marble city on top being embedded into the silt uh, at the bottom of the Venetian lagoon. And plus that you have rising sea levels. So, but beyond that, you know, there's no cars, there's no wheeled vehicles at all. You know, you have the canals and it's basically boat or walking. And there's a story, in my opinion, around every corner, underneath every bridge, at the bottom of every canal. The museums are phenomenal. The food, oh my God, you know, the food is just, I'm starting to get hungry just (laughs) thinking about it. And it's also a fantastic lifestyle. You know, you were talking about like giving the city back to the Venetians. And even though only 50,000 people live in Venice now, they still really live it up. You know, they have these incredible happy hours where you're drinking wine from the barrel and things like that. And by the way, not to uh, go back to COVID, but, um, you know, Venice is no stranger to plagues. A lot of people don't know this, but the word quarantine actually comes from the Venetian. The Venetian is another dialect, the Venetian dialect for 40, which is how many days people would have to quarantine on a boat before being released. So, you know, imagine quarantines for 40, quarantining for 40 days. <laughs> and of course, all the, ma- the masks that we wear today, that comes from Venice from hundreds of years ago. Really? And yes, because they figured it out. You know, I, I don't want to, I'm not getting political here at all, but hundreds of years ago in this city where at the time they had a quarter million people. Yeah, there's 50,000 people now, but they had a quarter million people back then completely cramped. And if plague broke out in one particular neighborhood, they had to quarantine that neighborhood and everybody wore masks until the plague was under control. Um, And they figured it out and happened time and time again. Yeah, it popped up again, but it would pop up like, you know, decades later, uh, that type of thing. So it's yeah. Well, sure, Rob, if you want to trust thousand year old fake science. (laughs) (laughs) Touche. What a concept. You know, we, uh, you know, still haven't figured out that covering your nose and mouth uh, (laughs) (laughs) helps stop spreading germs around. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, So you wrote out COVID in uh, Denver pretty much? Yes, we did. So um, we moved here a few months before it really hit. Uh, you know, found a house, got settled, and boom, <laughs> well. pandemic. But, you know, there, in Denver, I'm glad, even though I miss LA quite a bit, I am glad that we were in Denver at that time. Uh, there were some silver linings for us because we met some neighbors at the park and things like that, who our daughter became friends with their kids and that kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, we wrote it out, and apparently it's over here now, <laughs> which uh, yeah, is great. Right. Hopefully, hopefully it is. And so, your uh, yeah. your ski game has improved, I'm sure. 
Well, actually, this was the first time I had gone skiing since we moved here. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, because the ski resorts were hit kind of quickly in the beginning. Like that, that was sort of like an epicenter. Um, but then Colorado itself got it under control very quickly. And then they did reopen, but you had to have a pass at the time. And then I think they were taking reservations. So we missed out. So, uh, but we got the ski pass this year, but then my wife actually went skiing in November, her very first run, um, after years got off the lift and twisted her ACL, which is terrible. I feel terrible for her that that happened. Uh, really sucks. So she was laid up and she had surgery in the beginning of January. So then we couldn't go. So I, I, I went actually in February. That was really, uh, my first time, but this is, I just drove up for the day, which is an awesome thing about Denver, but this is our first overnight trip really since moving here. No, that's great. And uh, I haven't been this year, but how's the snowpack and the snowfall there? So it was really awesome up until last week when it hit 70 and it started melting rapidly. But this week it snowed on Monday and Tuesday. Um, Today was incredible conditions and it's supposed to snow again tomorrow. So the snow is good again. That's good. Yeah, that's good. What's a lift ticket now in Vail? Like one day. This is the conversation that we've been having. So we do have a pass and we're also here with some friends, some uh, New York high school friends, actually, and their kids who came out. Uh, they live in, in Michigan now, but they came out. And um, the lift, the one day lift ticket price is $250. Uh, $250 mm-hmm. in Vail? Yep. $250, one day, one adult. Yep. And that doesn't include rentals or anything? Nope. Oh, is that a weekend or week weekday? That was weekday. I don't even know. Oh. What the, that was that was today. Two fifty. Yep, yep. Ooh. And so I can get discounted ticket, discounted buddy tickets. So my buddy got a buddy pass through me, and the woman at the counter was like, "Yeah, you saved a hundred dollars. There's only one hundred and fifty dollars for the buddy pass." <laughs> wow. Whew. That's a that's a bite. You gotta. Yeah, man. But I don't yeah. think really that many people are buying it just for one day. Um, you know, yeah. you, buy, I mean, like, you can get a three-day pass, and I think it brings it down to maybe like 175 or something like that. Vail is more expensive than Breckenridge or Keystone for sure. Um, but it's still crazy. That's still that's still pretty outrageous. Aspen, I don't even want to think about. I don't even know. About I can't Aspen. even imagine. I can't even imagine. That's crazy. Yeah, I know. It just you keeps go going to I, it's been years. It's been years. I mean, I, for one reason or another, I just haven't gone in the last few years. Right. Um, but I usually would go like one weekend a year, just kind of get my fix. Mm-hmm. I'm not that good. I mean, I'm, I like doing it, but it's like two, three days. I'm good for the year. And as long as I don't uh, blow a knee out, I'm right. That's a win. That's a win. I'll stick to my blue runs. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I remember I, it's been a number of years for me at Mammoth too. And I don't know how much it is there, but I remember when it got up to a hundred and I was like, this is crazy. Turns and a corner. Every, yeah. Yeah. And everybody was like, it can't get much more expensive than that. Two fifty. <laughs> yeah. Boy, that's a, that's an eye opener. Um, so I, I'll let you go. I know you're on vacation and I got to start packing myself to finally get a flight, which I'm very excited about. But um about the book, what do you want uh, people to take away from it? And, and what, what should they go in expecting and um, sell it for us? You know what I mean? Sure. Let me excited yeah. about it. Absolutely. So for me as a writer, I really love two things, story and theme. 
and character, you can say, right? So um, the, uh, there's two themes to my book. One is that love conquers all. And two is that absolute power corrupts absolutely. So I also love when themes are diametrically opposed to each other. So when you have one theme about love conquering all and another theme about power corrupting, um, you know, they're going to come to a head. So I love that. And then if you have some interesting characters and you put them into that theme with a very cool story and a cool adventure that they go through, that's what I love. I like writing stuff that I like watching. So I want people to get out of this really kind of like a thought provoking thriller, if you will. So imagine if it, you know, Indiana Jones, like really made you think um, something like that. So like the, the concepts of it, because there's also a, a lot of gray area in my book about right and wrong. So things like that. So, but you do have a good amount of action. So it's this thrilling story. So I just want people to go on a thrill ride and have fun. It is a bit of a, an escapist book. It's an awesome book for trips, by the way, um, you know, not just to Italy, but it is a great plane book or beach book or whatever you want to say, because it's escapist. So it's fun, but it also at the same time makes you think. And then finally, I want people to like it so much that they're going to want to read the next book. That's great. Well, can where can people uh, get it now? Is it on Amazon or can we get it through Audible? I just got an Audible app. Nice. They got you Audible. reading it. Do you Are you reading it? Am I reading Audible? Yeah. Can you read your uh, own book? Narrate your own. Oh, am I narrating it? No. Uh, so the, the audiobook is coming out. Not yet. I'm not narrating it though. So um, a professional a professional is doing it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So the book is available on Amazon, of course, Barnes and Noble, um, many other places as well, some bookstores. Uh, if you go onto my website, www.robsamborn.com, R-O-B-S-A-M as in Mary, B as in boy, O-R-N.com. Uh, there's a list of places where you can buy it. And the audiobook will be on audio. Audible and other um, audiobook sites. Uh, I think it's coming out in August, but it might be earlier than that. Okay, that's great. How about if people want to follow you on your on Instagram or something? Where are so you? So most of my handles are Rob Sanborn. So I'm on Instagram. Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, TikTok, which I really started liking recently. Really? I uh, I, haven't, yes. I don't know. Maybe I missed the boat on that. Well, I'm only 18. So that's true. Yeah. <laughs> it's for you kids. It's for you young kids. Well, the reason why I like TikTok is because I use it a little bit differently. You know, most people on TikTok, it's just a picture of their face and like, hey, I'm doing something or other, blah, blah, blah. But Doing I'm a dance. Yeah, something like that, which is fine, you know, but I'm trying to make these little promotional videos about the book. So um, I love their editing tool. And the other great thing about it is their music library is it blows me away. They have every single song you can think of, a 30 <laughs> second clips or a mini clip. And then so you can make these cool videos and put, you know, Pink Floyd or whatever. <laughs> Probably should have said something a little bit more relevant. That's okay. Taylor, Taylor, you can do you Billie Eilish. It. Yeah. <laughs> right. You can have a soundtrack of Billie Eilish um, and Taylor Swift. So it's very cool. So anyway, my handle on almost everything is Rob Sambor. Okay. Well, that's great. Well, I appreciate you doing this. I'm sorry I took you away from your ski vacation. There. Oh, not at all. It's nighttime. Um, you know, my they're just sleeping. So everybody's <laughs> already passed and, out. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe they're not. I'm going to go back and have a beer. That a boy. Yeah. And Mike, I really appreciate you having me on your show. It's been great talking to you. I hope to see you on a travel thing 
travel trip. <laughs> yes, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, all right. Well, hang on. And I'm going to uh, uh, pause this or stop the recording. But uh, I appreciate that. And then people can find the links also to all your stuff on uh, TravelTalesPodcast.com. Thanks again, Rob. Thank you, Mike. It's been a pleasure. Rob Samborn, everybody. Mm-hmm.